Well, good morning. It is good to have you in the building, those of you online, so glad that you're joining us from wherever you're joining us from, from Vancouver to Vancouver and Burlington to Belize and Ferndale to Florida, wherever you are, glad that you're with us in our Skagit campus as well. I want to give a special shout out this morning in the room. Gene uh, is with us this morning and it is his 96th birthday today and we just want to say happy birthday, Gene, so glad you're here, <clears throat> going strong and uh, us talking to him before the service and just talked about how good God has been to him. And I tell you what, there's nothing about, uh, nothing like the faithfulness of God in a life that has been lived well and experienced God's goodness. So Gene, we, we just celebrate with you and wish you a happy birthday. Speaking of celebrating, last week we got to celebrate the empty, which was so cool uh, to be able to celebrate the fact that the tomb was empty and the promises are empty, which gives us hope for today and for eternity. And uh, what a wonderful time. Uh, some of the numbers are still coming in, but I did want to let you know our Easter offering this year. Um, we don't know the, I don't know the exact number yet, but it is, I do know for a fact, it is over $100,000 uh, that uh, you gave this last week. So, yeah, thank you so much for your generosity, uh, being a blessing because of God's blessing in your life. And it will allow us collectively to continue to impact and help and serve and come alongside and collaborate uh, and bring hope and healing to our world. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, we're uh, finishing up this series, Meals with Jesus. If you've been with us throughout this year, you know we started 2021 with three weeks, 21 days of, of prayer and fasting. We went straight from fasting into feasting, and we started this Meals with Jesus series. And so for the last two and a half months, we've been looking at these meals where Jesus has these interactions and these exchanges with people that are life-changing for them and completely alters their thinking, their lives, the whole thing. And what's, what's, I think, fascinating is after the resurrection, what we celebrated last week, after the resurrection, the gospel writers intentionally record the fact that Jesus come back from the dead actually eats on several occasions. And, and it's very intentional why they put that in there. You, some of you know that the shortest uh, Bible verse is Jesus wept. Well, after the resurrection, we can say Jesus ate. So, so what I want to do today as we finish out this series, and as it's the week after the resurrection, I want us to look at meals with Jesus after the resurrection. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cram two meals into this one. One of them uh, we're going to spend more time on, but, but the other one I just find absolutely fascinating. And I thought, well, I can't end the series without talking about it. So we've got to get right into it. So last week, I was talking about on, on Easter afternoon, the resurrection Sunday afternoon, there were these two people, Clopas or Cleopas, and most likely his wife Mary. They were going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which was seven miles away. This was part of the sermon last week's quick review. Jesus comes up. He's walking with them. They don't recognize it's Jesus. They're down in the face. He's like, what's the problem with you guys? And they said, are you the only one that doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem? They said, what thing? Jesus says, what things? They began to explain about this Jesus <laughs> to Jesus, about what he said, what he's done, and how he was crucified. What happens next is they still don't recognize that it's Jesus. Jesus gives them this mobile Bible study. This would have been so cool. And Luke records it this way. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's one that I wish I could have been in on. Because Jesus would have all the insights that none of us are I never caught that. Oh, that's what that meant. And he's just talking about himself. They get to Emmaus. He basically says, hey, this is your exit. See you guys. I'm moving on. I said, no, 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 come to our house. 
So they, he says, oh, okay. So it's a hospitality thing. He goes to their house, and they're preparing to have a meal with Jesus. They just don't know it's with Jesus. So they sit down at the table, and it says when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Some of you right now are saying, I've heard that before. When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, it says he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Well, now, Clopas and his wife were not in the upper room, but they've been a follower of Jesus, and they've heard the things he said, and they've seen the things he's done, and it is possible that they were there when he fed the 5,000. And when he fed the 5,000, it says he took the loaves, he gave thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to them. And if Jesus did this when he fed the 5,000, and he did this when he was in the upper room with his disciples, and he does this in Emmaus, could it be that this is the way Jesus always started meals? This was just kind of his routine. Every time they sat down to a meal, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave. And maybe, this is all speculation, maybe as they're sitting there with Jesus at a meal with Jesus, and they don't recognize it's Jesus, they recognize the way he starts this meal. They recognize when he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives like, wait, 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 this is familiar. And maybe it's when he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them, and they, look at his hands. Whatever it was, at that moment, they've been walking with him, they've been hearing a Bible study, they're having a meal with him. At that moment, it says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared. Sorry to eat and run. He didn't even eat, he just ran. And, and they're like, oh! <laughs> And they're like, we got to tell the others. They run back. It's, it's, a, it's a 12K. They run seven miles back to J-Town, to Jerusalem, and they go to where all the Jesus followers are, and they say, you guys, we, we saw him. You can't believe him. And, and Clopas, he's like, don't you know what happened? And it's like talking to Jesus. I'm like, well, you're no better. You didn't know. And he's giving this Bible study. And then he, he took the bread, and he, did, and he broke it, and he gave it in his hands and all that. While they're doing all this, while they were telling what had happened, Jesus was recognized uh, when he broke the bread. Okay, next one. While... While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And if I was me, I'd be going, boo. I mean, it, it, it just freaked him out. I mean, what a cool opportunity. Uh, surprise. He said, peace be with you. And they think it's a ghost. You read this for yourself. They're, they're convinced he's a ghost. And Jesus says, whoa, no, look at me. Look at, don't look at me. Touch me. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. And then it says, he showed them his hands, and he showed them his feet. They still don't believe him. And while they still do not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? <laughs> I love this. They're like, it's too good to be true. And, and yeah, yes, we, we see him and we touch him, but maybe we're having a group hallucination. This is, I, we don't know what's going on here. And he just says, hey, you, you got anything to eat here? Here's... Two reasons why I think. One, remember, Jesus is 100% fully God, but he is completely human as well. And the last time he ate was on Thursday night with his disciples in the upper room. Since then, he's gone through the, the beating, the whipping, the, you know, the flogging, the crucifixion. He has died. He's conquered sin, death, hell, and grave. That'll work up a powerful big appetite. He hasn't eaten since Thursday night. Humanly speaking, he's hungry. 
But not only that, they won't believe. They see him, they don't believe. They touch him, they don't believe. The hands and feet, they don't believe. He says, give me some food. I'll show you. You give food to a ghost, it falls on the floor. You give ghosts, you give food to a, a human being who is alive, and it'll be taken in, and he eats this food. He has the first Easter dinner, and I guarantee you in this Jewish home, it was not ham and scalloped potatoes. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. What a cool story. They finally, they finally believe when he eats, eats this food. Now, I just felt like we couldn't go through this series without at least touching base with that meal, but that's not the one I want to focus on. 12 or 15 hours earlier in this same day, early in the morning on Easter morning, the women have gone to the tomb. An angel is there. The tomb is empty. We talked about this last week. He says, he's not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where they laid him. And then Mark records another detail that is given, uh, this dialogue, given to these women by the angel. It says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. His disciples and Peter. Is it that Peter feels like he has failed so miserably that he's not allowed to be a part of the disciples? Is it that the disciples have felt like Peter has failed so miserably he's not allowed to be a part of them? Or is he just saying, yeah, Peter's one of the disciples. They, I want you then to hear this. I need you to make sure, I need you to make sure that Peter hears this. That I'm going to go ahead to Galilee just as, you know, just as he had told them. You remember that the angel said, he's not here, he's risen just as he said. Like, if you can trust him, that he followed through on the resurrection, you can trust him on this. And this, we'll look at this later, but it was after the Lord's Supper, before they went over to the, across the Kingdom Valley to the Mount of Olives, that he said to them, after I'm crucified, I will rise and I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So he's saying, I want you to do this. This is the meal that I want us to spend our time on today. And if you want to, uh, follow along in your Bible. We're going to be looking at John chapter 21. John, as an author of the, the Gospel of John, there's so much of what he does with signs and symbolism and things. In this story, there are so many little details, so many loose ends that are tied up. There's so many dots that are connected, so many parallels, so many comparisons, so many bookends, so, so many contrasts. We won't be able to hit them all, but when you begin to see this, you begin going, oh, wow, oh, oh it's, it's amazing what happens. And one of the things that sets this meal apart from all the others that we've looked at, very unique, different from all the other meals in Jesus, I'll jump ahead in the, in the story. In verse 12, Jesus says, says to them, come and have breakfast. All the other meals, maybe in the afternoon, evening, at night, but this one is breakfast. Have you ever heard this phrase, breakfast is the most important meal of the day? Have you ever heard that? Did you know that that was a marketing campaign put on by cereal, breakfast cereal makers way back and it worked because we all believed it? You don't care. Okay, I don't either. <laughs> Scientifically, breakfast is not necessarily the most important. I, I, I'm sorry to, to burst your bubble, but, but this breakfast, is this one the most important meal of the day? I'll tell you what, for Peter, this meal, this breakfast may have been the most important meal with Jesus that he had in the entire three years, even greater than that, that Lord's Supper in the upper room. 
And what I want us to look at is the significance of the Lord's breakfast. We spend a lot of time talking about the Lord's Supper. In fact, Pastor Kip and I spent two weeks preaching about the Lord's Supper and what happened in the upper room. We have communion from the Lord's Supper. Today I want us to focus on the Lord's breakfast and see how significant it is, maybe one of the most important meals. Give you a little bit of backdrop and then we'll jump into it. This happens in Galilee, uh, kind of up in that, that, probably that northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. There's an area up there by Capernaum. And just two miles from there, a little less than two miles, is a place called, um, called Tabga. And there are seven uh, springs that feed into the Sea of Galilee there. And it is the best area for fishing on the entire lake. And so that's probably where they are. Traditionally speaking, just 150 yards or so from Tabga is a place, uh, there's a church there called the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter. And this is where they believe this took place. With that being just a couple miles from Capernaum, where some of the disciples were from, where Jesus spent most of his time, we do know that Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Philip were all from that region, from Capernaum, Bethsaida, those kind of things. And Matthew, the tax collector, when he comes and joins in, he's up by Capernaum as well. And there are seven disciples in this gathering that we're going to look at today. Where the other four are, we don't know, but there are seven of them there. If all of those things are the case that at least five or six of these disciples, they may have grown up in this area. They may have been on that beach as kids. They may, may have been down there skipping rocks and swimming on hot summer afternoons. They may have had their slingshots shooting at birds, floating little, little boats out. This is a very familiar piece of the lake to them. As teenagers, they began to join their dads in the, in the family fishing business, knowing that the best fishing is right off of these seven springs and the water and the warm water and all the nutrients that come into it, that this is where they, they grew up fishing. And three years earlier, this is where they had been fishing all night and caught nothing, and, and there's this miraculous catch, and Jesus utters these words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It was right there on that beach where Jesus told them to leave their nets and come follow him. It was just up the hill where they could see from there where Jesus fed the 5,000. This is a very familiar spot to them. And now they go back. And maybe they go back because this is home. And Jesus says, I will meet you in Galilee. Where else would they go? Capernaum is where he always went in Galilee. And this is happening somewhere between a week and a month after the resurrection. With all that backdrop, we pick up in John chapter 21, verse 3, and it says, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. All right, not highly unusual. These, most of these guys were fishermen. Most of them had grown up here. This was their business. This is where they fished. They knew all this. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they're trying to kill time. Jesus didn't say when he would meet them in Galilee, just that he would. And maybe they've been there for a couple weeks and he hasn't shown up yet. But they know he will because he said he would. They don't know. So maybe they're just going to, to fish. Maybe they just love to do this as a hobby. Maybe they're saying, somehow we've got to make ends meet. We've got to go make some money. Let's go, let's go fishing. Maybe it's just nostalgia. Last fall, I went to visit my mom in Vancouver, Washington, where I grew up. And on one afternoon, I decided I'm going to go back to all these little spots where my brother and I grew up going fishing. Burnt Bridge Creek, Vancouver Lake, the Flight of Moorage, which is a slough. Uh, Klein Line, it's an old gravel pit. And I went back to all these places where as kids and teenagers, we would go fishing. And as I would go to those, I mean, there were spots and there were moments that I would remember in different fishing trips that I would remember specific things about. And maybe these guys are doing that. So they just go out. They go out fishing, seven of them. And it says this, that night they caught nothing. 
Some of you know there's a big difference between fishing and catching. They've been fishing, but they haven't been catching. And they fish at night, and they've been fishing these waters their whole life, and they know where to fish, and they know how to fish, but tonight they get skunked. There's nothing. And all night long, they keep casting those nets, and all night long, they keep coming up with nothing but seaweed. They've got nothing. And early in the morning, as the, the eastern sky starts to get pale, get a, bit, a little bit of light, maybe there's some, some steam coming up off of the lake. It says this, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. It's early. The, the light is still dim. They're 100 yards away. There, there's, just, there's a man on the shore. It's not unusual. There's... there's Grew up with these, this area, and there's a man out there. It's Jesus, and they don't realize that. He calls out to them, not yelling. Voices travel over water so well. Friends. Now, some of your translations say children. M maybe it's, it's like saying, hey, guys. Hey, fellas. Hey, boys. A young man. Hey, lads. Friends, haven't you any fish? <laughs> Which is kind of a negative way to ask the question. He could have said, any luck? How many did you get? He says, negative. In fact, the direct, absolute, uh, literal translation of this is, not anything for eating, have you? <laughs> a little bit Yoda-like, but it's like, you're going to be hungry today, right? And they're like, yeah, we haven't caught anything, no, no. Now, remember, I mentioned this. Three years earlier, maybe at the very same spot, Jesus puts out into Peter's boat, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And, and Peter says, we've fished all night and haven't caught anything. Similarity here. And we don't fish in the daytime, and we don't fish in the deep water. And Peter says, but because you say so, I will. And he lets his nets down, and the catch is so big, the boat's sinking, the nets are breaking, people are coming in to help. It was at that moment that that happens. They don't pick up on this yet, but it's three years later, and it's setting up the same way. They've fished all night, and they've caught nothing. And there's a guy, this man, out on the shore, and he says, hey, he says, uh, throw your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Not throw your nets on the right side of the boat and see if there's any you will find some. Jesus is asking them. I mean, what's the difference from the right side to the left side? The fish there, fish there, there's a school, that just, it's a net. It's, 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 so what's the big deal? So they do. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. They're going, this is amazing. They're trying to pull these fish. They're getting the fish, and they're all working. One of the disciples is maybe a little more uh, reflective. He's like, oh, no, wait a second. This is like deja vu all over again. Because this has happened before. And it happened here. And it happened when we were with G. Wait, is it? Oh. It says, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it, it is, it is, it is, it is the Lord. Now, notice, this is John. Remember last week, he wouldn't use his name. He just said, I'm faster than Peter. Today he says, I'm just the favorite disciple. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. I won't give him my name, humble as I am, but I am the one. He says, it is the Lord. It, it, 
it's, it's like it's, it's starting to click. This is the same thing that happened. Well, Peter's response, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Typical Peter response. Impulsive, impetuous, act now, think later. And to borrow a little bit of uh, verbiage from Jeff Foxworthy, if you've been up all night with your buddies fishing in a boat naked, you just might be a redneck. <laughs> Most people take their clothes off to go swimming. Peter puts his clothes on to go swimming. He's been out in the boat naked all night. It's Peter, what do you expect? And then he goes swimming. Here's an interesting thing. Three years earlier, when this scenario happened, and there was a miraculous catch, his response was, away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He's trying to get, he's seen Jesus, and he's trying to get away because he knows of his sin. And now, three years later, it's not away from me, Lord. Away from me, fish. Away from me, disciples. Away from me, boat. I've got to get to the Lord. I'm swimming. I can't wait for us to row. I've got to get in there. I've got to see Jesus. And he swims in, leaving all the boat and all the fish and all the nets for all the disciples to bring him in. Verse 9 says, When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Where did those fish come from? They're, they're just getting to shore. And where did the bread come from? And more importantly, what's up with the burning coals? So, something about fire. Something about wood smoke. You know, for some of you, you, you smell a certain smell of a wood smoke fire, and it takes you back to your childhood, camping with your parents or camping with your grandpa, whatever. And it just, you know how that smell of smoke can take you back? Or different kinds of smoke. If I smell the smoke of, like, alder, I think of Anthony's. Because when you go into Anthony's and they're doing that alder plank salmon and you just smell that, and I'm not trying to get you hungry or something, but you smell, or sorry, you smell hickory. You start thinking barbecue. Or if you think, you know, different things, you, the, the smell of the smoke. Jesus produces some fish, maybe created them, maybe just said, hey, guys, I need a couple of you. I need to borrow some of you for a bit. He's got some fish there. He's got some bread there. He's got some fire. Jesus could have any kind of fire he wants. He could have fire of olive wood, of redwood, of, of any kind of wood. But he has a fire of coals. Now, I'm not as, as Greek geeky as Pastor Kip. Not even close. All right? But the word here that we have burning coals is the Greek word anthrakia. Anthrakia only happens twice in the entire New Testament. And both of them, John uses it. The other time was two chapters early in, earlier in John chapter 18, verse 18. When Jesus is being tried at Caiaphas' house, he's been arrested, and Peter is warming himself in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house by an anthrakia, by a fire of coals. And that morning, there's a fire of coals. The smoke from charcoal smells far different than it does smoke from wood. The last time Peter smelled this smoke, he denied his Lord three times. The last time he smelled this smoke was the night of his greatest regret. The time in his life where he would give anything to be able to redo it. And now he comes onto the shore and there's Jesus and he smells that smoke. He smells that charcoal fire. See, I think this is a very intentional detail that John puts in. And I think it's very intentional 
fire matter, the, the, the material that Jesus chooses. Say, so, oh, is it just, to, you know, just to, to make Peter suffer, to remind him of all that? So the question is, is it, is, it for, is it for shame or is it for redemption? Like pun intended, does Jesus just use that to, to kind of emotionally rake Peter over the coals to just kind of remind him of what he did, the failure, the denial, or, or in, in Jesus' great grace, does he use this as a chance for redemption? That maybe, just maybe, Jesus knows that for the rest of Peter's life, every time he smells charcoal fire of fumes, he will beat himself up, and maybe here's a chance to redeem that, so that for the rest of his life, every time that he, he smells this uh, entharchia, he doesn't think about the worst failure of his life. He thinks about the best breakfast of his life. He thinks about the redemption that could come to him. Maybe Jesus is doing this as an act of grace so that that smell will always be something of a glorious hallelujah rather than a self-condemnation. Or, 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 and this is purely speculation on my side. What if there's an even deeper spiritual meaning? What if Peter, racked with his guilt and his shame because of his sin, that Jesus intentionally chooses the charcoal fire? Because if you'll remember, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is in the very presence of God, in the throne of, of the, the Most High, and the, and the angelic beings are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And, and Isaiah says, Oh, woe to me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and of, amongst people of unclean lips. And the angelic seraph went to the altar and grabbed a live coal and touched his lips and said to him, Your sin, your, your, your guilt is removed, and your sin is is atoned for. And what if, this is all speculation, what if Jesus chose coals to, in a way, on a deep level, say, Peter, you know Isaiah 6. These coals, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So Peter's there. The other guys finally land the boat and they've got all these fish, lots of fish. The nets didn't break. And Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now, it's easy to just read right on through this. But, but let's just stop for a minute. Jesus and seven of his disciples. The disciples, you can imagine, they can't get the grin off their faces like, he's here. He, he, just like he said. And, and he's alive. And, and we're eating. And we're, and we're with him. And, and, and maybe they're just like recounting all the things that happened here. Jesus, man, this is so great to be. You remember, you, you remember that time when we were in the boat, and, and that was awesome. And I, well, we hadn't fished, all, and we're getting caught nothing on and, and, and the other side. And you remember that one? And, and, and you know, okay, okay, remember when we were out there in that stormy night, and you came walking and freaked us out? You remember that one? And, and how, oh, remember what you said? Just be, be calm and be, oh, okay, you remember, oh, remember that other time? Jesus, you were asleep on the back of the boat. I never have understood. Oh, okay. Hey, remember up there on the hill when you gave that Beatitudes and that, that oh, or when we fed the 5,000, right? It was like right here. Remember that? Or, or you remember that? Matthew, you remember you, you were collecting taxes just two miles from here and Jesus called. And maybe they're just going through all of these memories, just enjoying this breakfast together, thinking about their three years together, thinking about all the things that Jesus had done in their life. And then they get done eating and Conversation kind of calms down. And Jesus is pensively just kind of stoking the fire. And maybe the other disciples take their cues. And they stop talking. 
And it says, verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, remember Peter was the nickname that Jesus had given to him. Peter means rock. He called him Rocky. You're like this solid rock foundation. You know, yeah, when you walk on water, you sink. But you're going to be a foundation. You're Rocky. You're good. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? He doesn't call him Peter today. He calls him by his formal name, Simon, son of John. Why? I don't know for a fact, but I know this. When my mom used my full name, Robert Neal Marvel, <laughs> it was not a good thing. It usually meant I had really messed up. Is Jesus using that as a reprimand? Maybe. Or is he using the formal name to say, listen, what we're getting ready to talk about here is not a casual conversation. It's not just a memory of something we've done in the last three years. This is actually very solemn and very sacred. And I want you to know how serious I am in this conversation. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? These what? It's been speculation for years. What's Jesus talking about? These friends of yours, these memories you've had on the seashore, do you love me more than you love the life you've lived? Do you love me more than these memories, these friends? Do you love me more than these fish? It's your, it's your livelihood. It's what you know. It's what you do best. It's the success. It's the worldly value system. Do, do you love me more than these? Or is, how about the miraculous catches, the miracles that I brought? Do, do you love me more than the signs? Do you love me more than the miracles, more than the big splash? Most commentators over the years have, have landed on, he probably was talking about, do you truly love me more than these other disciples love me? Because Peter, who was in the inner circle, was the only one who was adamantly proclaiming that he would never deny the Lord. In fact, what I referenced before, after the upper room experience, Jesus says this, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, just as he said. But Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I won't. I'll go to prison with you. I'll go to the, the grave with you. I will die with you. These other bozos can't talk to them about it. They're all going to fall away, but I will not. You can count. I am rocky. I love you more than these. And he denies the Lord three times. And Jesus brings him back to the fire and says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Doesn't compare himself to anyone else. Doesn't claim to be greater than anyone else. He says, yes, Lord, you know. I know what I did, but you know my heart. You know I love you. And those of you who are familiar with this story know that in verse 15, in verse 16, and in verse 17, this exchange happens three times. Again, we read it back to back to back. I wonder if this was a solemn moment. The sun has now come up. They've all eaten their breakfast. 
And Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And they have the exchange, and then it's just quiet for a while. And everyone knows this isn't the time to joke. This isn't the time. I don't know. A couple minutes. Ten minutes. Verse 16. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Same response. Maybe another five minutes. Another ten. It's uncomfortable. Verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times he asks him this. And it could almost seem like Jesus is just being cruel, like torturous, like just give him a break. He said yes. He already feels bad enough as it is. But maybe this is such such an act of mercy and grace that Peter knows he has some regrets from some other threes and this is a chance to redeem that it was in the garden of Gethsemane Jesus went with his disciples and said would you pray with me and he takes Peter, James and John a little deeper into the, into the garden and he asks them to pray to keep watch with him and Jesus comes back and they're asleep Peter's asleep. And he wakes him up and he says, could you not watch with me for one hour? Please stay, stay with me in prayer. And he comes back in there asleep. He says, guys, I, I need you at this time. And he goes away three times. Three times. Peter fell asleep in the garden. And how for those three days that Jesus was in the grave, how he thought, if I could have just stayed awake, I should have just stayed awake. Why did I fall asleep? Three times I fell asleep. Three times I failed him. When he's around that charcoal fire in Caiaphas' courtyard, the young teenage girl says, aren't you one of his disciples? No, I never knew the man. Your accent betrays you. You're a Galilean. You were one of his. No, I never knew the man. Uh, weren't you with Jesus calling curses down upon himself, swearing, I never knew the man? Three times he denies him. And the rooster crows and the smell of the charcoal fire, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. He has failed again and again and again, and maybe, just maybe, as a beautiful act of mercy and redemption, Jesus is recreating the context of the charcoal fire that reminds him of his greatest failure. And he recreates the content of the three questions, the three answers, the three denials, the three sleeping times, in order for, for Peter to be able to redeem himself. That maybe in all of this interchange and everything that's happening here, he says, yeah, yeah, there was great failure, but there is greater grace. Yeah, he doesn't sugarcoat what Peter did. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't say it was no big deal. It was a big deal, but there's something that's an even bigger deal. And that is the grace that meets us in our failure. Paul would go on to write in Romans chapter 5, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Maybe what Jesus is saying is not, Peter, I want you to be just filled with guilt and remorse. I want to rake you over the coals. I want you to remind you. I want to torture you. Maybe he's saying, Peter, I'm giving you the chance to plunge your greatest failure into the depths of my grace for redemption. Maybe this would be the thing 
that would come to his mind the rest of his life when he smells that smoke of the redemption of Jesus in his life and what he's done. So he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, 15, 16, and 17, same thing. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And there's a message that is very clear to Peter, and it needs to be very clear to us. That Peter, you, you say you love me, but loving Jesus is expressed in loving others. You can say you love me, but you want to show that you love me? Feed my sheep. That's what it is. Loving Jesus is expressed in loving others. It, it's in caring for others. It's, it's in sharing with others. You can worship, but do you love others? You can be disciplined, but do you love others? You can sacrifice, but do you love others? I'll say it one more time. Loving Jesus is expressed in loving others. Isn't that what happened in the upper room when he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so wash one another's feet. Don't wash mine. Wash one another's. Isn't that what Jesus said when here's the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In John 15, when he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you would have, as I have loved you, you would love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Peter, I'm telling you, I know you love me. Here's what I want you to do. Feed my sheep. Take care of the lambs. And the lambs, lambs, he starts off with lambs. Lambs, the most vulnerable, weak, needy, they need nurture, they need attention, they need care, they, they, they're, they're defenseless. To care for lambs means you give and you give and you give and you don't get a lot in return. What Jesus is doing here is he's bringing about a transformation in Peter's heart. That he says, I want you to be more like me. You say you love me, you say you'll follow me. I want you to be like me. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is what is so beautiful to me. It's so cool. The book ends here. Is when they met three years earlier at this beach, at the beginning of the ministry, and now three years later, same beach probably, at the end of the ministry. Jesus invites Peter to be transformed. Not just as a fisher of men, but as a shepherd. He starts off saying, I will make you a fisher of men. And now he's saying, I want you to feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. I want you to be, have the zeal of an evangelist, but the tender heart of a pastor. And he would. In Acts chapter 2, which this summer we're going to spend the whole summer studying the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and preaches with passion, the zeal of an evangelist. And 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. But there's also this transformation of his heart that he would shepherd, that he would, he would become tender and caring and kind and, and nurturing. And later he would write a letter, and it's called First Peter. It's this letter where he would talk to other leaders in the church, and he would say this, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Yeah, Peter, I want you to be a fisher of men. But I need you to be a shepherd as well. 
And he calls him to both of these things. So, three years earlier, Jesus says to him, follow me. And it takes him on a three-year adventure. He's failed miserable, he, miserably. He thinks he's done. He thinks his story is over. He thinks the last chapter has been written, all that. Then, three years, verse 19, Jesus says to him these words again. So, Peter, follow me. And we don't have time to go into any more of this story, but Jesus this time is saying, I'm not just asking you to leave your, your nets and your career and your hometown. I'm asking you to follow me like a good shepherd and lay down your life. And he talks about how he's going to end up dying. I'm asking you to give up your very life. And church tradition would say that years later, Peter was martyred for the faith. He was executed. He was crucified in Rome. This is church tradition. And when he was going to be crucified, he said, I am not worthy to be crucified my, like my Lord. I will be crucified upside down. I follow Jesus. And Jesus invites him back in to the story. What an amazing thing. Uh, uh, there's a, a gentleman that, that I highly respect going through a very difficult season, and he made this statement. He said, life is not a, a problem to be solved, but a story to be lived. And then he went on to say, and I'm in the middle of my story, and it's a difficult chapter. It's not just a problem to be solved. It's a story to be lived, and it's not done. When Peter had denied, when Peter had failed, he thought it was finished but it's not just a problem to be solved. It's a life to be lived. And Jesus says, the story, can, I'm still writing the story. And I'm writing your life into my story. And I'll tell you why I love this meal with Jesus so much. Is because Peter's story is my story. But 28, 29 years ago, having gone through a very difficult season, a very dark season, wondering if my story in ministry was done. Jesus and I had breakfast. And by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, he said, feed my sheep. And by his grace, and the goodness of this church, for 28 years now he's allowed me to be a part of the story and he's still writing that story it's my story Peter's story it's our story it's your story and maybe maybe where we could end on this one is just what Jesus says come and have breakfast Come and have breakfast with me. You think you've failed. You think you've sinned. You think you've disqualified yourself. Come and have breakfast. You love me? Let's keep writing the story. Some of you think, well, I don't have anything to offer. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. I want to write you into the story. I want you to be a part of a story that's bigger than your own story. Come and have breakfast. Plunge your failure into my grace. 
Let me write your story into mine. Let me take what you think was the end of the chapter, be of the first importance. Notice this all happens in John chapter 21, the last chapter of the gospel. It seems like it's the end chapter, but it's of first importance. Come, let's have breakfast.